Uh, back in October, um, we had a leadership meeting. We went up to King Solomon Christian Camp, if you're familiar where that's at. Um, just about six or eight of us went out there, and we kind of finalized our vision for uh, the upcoming year and where we wanted to be and where we thought we had come to. Um, I'm going to be honest with you, I was pretty cynical about that meeting when I first got there because uh, we'd been, I, I hadn't been a part of it for that long, but I know the eldership had been working years and years and years at finding a purpose statement, a vision to cast for, for the congregation, for this particular church body. And I was at a point where I just wanted it to be done and over with and just start doing stuff, you know? Um, I was frustrated because I was interested in, uh, in, in doing, like I said, rather than talking. Um, I think a lot of that was just some, some doubt in myself. Some of that was just some of my own insecurities. I spent a lot of time in my life thinking and talking and planning um, and I'm in a season in my life where I just want to jump in and start doing. I think some of that is good. I think a lot of that is spirit-directed, but I think sometimes it can be bad, too, like, um, because, boy, was I wrong when it came to this. Um, I think um, at one point we were all meeting in a little chapel in the uh, campground, and uh, we were, we'd been sitting there probably for, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour at that point, just going back and forth about, okay, what do we want? What do we want? What direction do we want to go? What does this mean? We'd looked at the survey, and I'd, I'd had it, honestly, to be, to be honest with you. I was a little short-tempered by that point, and I said, I'm tired of talking. Let's, we all know who we are. We all know what we're about. Let's just go and do it, you know? Um, and Ronnie called me out and said, okay, who are we then? What are we, where, where are we going to go? And from there, we kind of had this conversation. And obviously, you know, we came up with this theme, fostering the family of God. Like I said, I was completely wrong. I think when we finally got there, it just kind of clicked. The six or eight of us that were there were all just like, okay, this is it. We felt that the Spirit had led us to a point to where it wanted us to be, I think. I think it was really Spirit-driven and Spirit-led. Um, I think we all had a, a connection with it differently. Obviously, my connection with it is much vastly different than Jared's because Jared, as he talked about last week, has a, has a real ownership of that idea of fostering because of his relationship with his children, because of his boys, um, bringing, bringing in boys that aren't biologically his to become his family. Um, and he spoke a lot about that, and I'm not going to speak a lot about that, but I thought that was moving, and honestly, that's a really hard hard thing to to follow. I'm not going to be as emotional as he is. Uh, it's just not who I am, but I obviously don't, I'm, it's not going to resonate with me the same way that his boys resonate with him through that message, right? Um, one of the reasons, so I just want to talk about why it resonates with me, why this fostering the family of God idea really, really uh, registers with me and, and resonates with me. I think uh, I'm a former teacher. If you don't know me, I spent 10 years as a classroom teacher here in, in the public school system. I taught at the middle school from 2006 to 2015. And uh, when I think of the word foster, my first initial reaction isn't to the foster care system because I don't have any, any uh, background with that. My first thought when I come comes to the idea of fostering is that idea of nurturing and growing and developing a skill. Um, like, for instance, a teacher, it's a teacher's job to foster a, a learning environment, right? To foster an environment where his students or her students can be successful. And so that's where my idea, my, my, my thought go. My, my brain goes when I think of that. Um, so I'm going to spend our time together this morning talking about that second definition, um, to encourage or promote the development of something. Um, 
The vision of this statement is beautiful because it's not just, it is about bringing people in, but it's not just about bringing people in. It's, it's about growing people and helping them develop once they're here as well. It's not just about, the gospel message I think is about, and most importantly is about sharing with non-believers and bringing non-believers in, but once they're in the building, the journey starts. It doesn't stop. I think sometimes we're under the impression that once we get them in the building, our job is done, that Ronnie and Matt and Eric, the ministers, are responsible then for sharing the gospel and discipling and helping them grow. And I think that that couldn't be farther from the truth. It's their job to prepare us to do that. And it's our job as the church and as the body to not just bring people into the building, but then to help them develop into the mature Christians that they need to be once they're here. Um, I had a conversation with Eric a couple weeks ago. Sometimes I think we treat the church once we're here as a happily ever after when it's more like a once upon a time. Um, it's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of a new one. Um, it's something that um, is beautiful, but it's hard work. Um, before I get started, before we read our verse and get going, I want to give you a little bit of a warning. Um, some of the stuff that I'm going to say here might, you might find a little controversial. Um, I've been accused of sometimes being provocative for the sake of provoking. Um, that's not what I'm trying to do here. Um, if you find something that I say uncomfortable, if you find something that I say, you, if you find that you disagree with something that I say, I welcome that. Bring it. Come and talk to me afterwards. Pull me aside. I'd love to have a conversation. Um, because honestly, I am tired and frankly done with the way that our country treats people that disagrees with them. I'm tired of the discourse of I'm right, you're wrong, that I know everything and you know nothing. Um, if I say something that you disagree with, great. Call me on it. Help me grow. Help me be better. And I'll do the same for you. That's my, that's my promise to you. Um, I think that um, I'm in a time of life right now where I look for opinions that differ from mine. And the reason for that is because is I think we really suffer in America right now from confirmation bias, from um, kind of surrounding ourselves and purposefully seeking echo chambers of opinions and things that just agree with us. We look at, we, we search for it in our news, we search for it in our reading, we search for it online. Sometimes online does it for us. I think our social media kind of directs us in that way. It sees things that you've liked and it shows you more things like those things that you've liked right? So I think that we're at a really dangerous time where we're only seeing one side of the story. We're seeing everything that we agree with, but we're not really opening our minds to things to, that disagree with us. I think that's dangerous. I think that makes us smaller people. I think that makes our world smaller. I think for me specifically, if uh, I'm not willing to step over the boundaries of my comfort, then I'm not really looking to learn. I'm not really looking to grow. I'm not really looking to become better. And I think that's what this life is all about. I think it's all about. I think what we'll see in today's scripture is that um, God has called us to not be like those around us, that he's called us to not be like we were before. He's called us to be something better, something bigger that he's designed us to be. And um, it's not something that we can do on our own. It's not something that is possible in our own power. We have to submit to that power of that Holy Spirit. Um, until I'm willing to wrestle with experiences and beliefs that people have that are not my own, though, I'm not really learning anything new. So um, that being said, um, let's go ahead and, and dive right into this, all right? Um, we're going to read from 
chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians, if you want to go and bring that up for me. Um, I'm reading from the NASB, I don't know if that's the version they have up there or not, so no, it's not, it's NIV, so it's going to be a little different, but um, basically, um, God asks us to be drastically different than we have been before. Um, He asks us to change our whole worldview. It's something that is not like we are before. We are a new creation, we are a new self. Um, Please go ahead and read along with me up there or or with your device or your Bible if you've got it. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 17. I know it's a lot, but there's a lot to unpack. Colossians 3.1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and put, have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Okay, like I said before, when we join the family of God, we're required to have a new worldview. Um, I want to focus on four things that change specifically. There's a lot of stuff in here that I'm not going to get into, but I think there's four big ideas that I want to get into that change when we submit to the Lordship of Jesus. The first one is that my identity is no longer what it was. It is now anchored in Christ. We see this in verses 3 and 4, Christ has become our life, it says, right? Um, And this is a significantly different idea than the world. The world has all kinds of things that it wraps its its, um, identity up in. Um, When we grow up in America particularly, we are wrapped up in things, surface level things that don't matter, like appearance, um, sometimes skills. Um, I remember as a teenager being, my identity was all wrapped up in the sports that I played, Um, the grades I had in school, um, just the thought of whether or not my parents approved of me, all of these things is what my my identity was wrapped up in. And unfortunately, those things are all, they're good things. I think, I don't want to say that sports and grades and knowledge and families and relationships aren't good because those are good, but those are all things that 
are going to fall short if we put all of our hope in them. Um, I've experienced this um, in my professional life. When I was a classroom teacher, my whole identity was wrapped up in that job. Um, I felt that when I was doing a good job, I was on top of the world. When my kids were interested and engaged and learning, then everything was great and I felt good about myself and I felt like I was who I was supposed to be. But then the exact opposite happened when things weren't going well. When I couldn't get my kids to buy in, when they were disengaged, when they were acting out and rambunctious, I was depressed and sullen and, and lonely because of all of that, because I had all of my hope and all of my identity wrapped up in something that is good, but is not what was meant to have my identity wrapped up in. Um, this is true, and I think it happens when we find worth in anything outside of God, when we find worth in our jobs, in our relationships, in our wealth or money, in our talents, in our skills, you name it. Um, those things aren't bad, like I said, but they're lesser. Um, whether friends, spouses, children, you name it, parents, if, if I wrap up my identity in another person, that person's going to let me down. I know we've all been in relationships, whether they're romantic relationships or relationships with parents or relationships with children or friends, that you've felt betrayed. Raise your hand if you haven't been betrayed by another human being. No one's hand's going to go up. We've all felt that way. We all feel hurt by things, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, that other people do. And when we wrap our identity up in those things, then not only do we end up hating that person, but a lot of times we end up hating ourselves because we feel like we're not good enough. We feel like we're not worthy. We feel like we've done something wrong, when in a lot of cases we haven't. This passage is pretty clear, and I think it's clear without, throughout the Bible that all of these imperfect things will eventually let us down, but when our life is Christ, we can endure when those things let us down. We can persevere, and in the end, when our identity is centered in who God is, those other things, especially human relationships, will become fuller and more fulfilling because we have not placed too lofty of expectations upon them. These things are good, but none of those things give you value. They're not what make you valuable. They're not what make you worthy. And don't get me wrong, you are valuable, you are worthy. God makes that very clear. You have value because of who made you. Psalm 139 tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by a master craftsman. We've been set apart and made distinct. Each and every one of us is a work of art, made and known by the designer of the universe. The same God that made the oceans and the mountains, the streams, the rivers, the stars in the sky, the animals and even the angels, he made you and he made you with a purpose and he designed you to be you. If there's not hope in that, I don't know where there is hope. Um, Genesis 1, 26 and 20 says it, tells us that he's even made you in his image. He's chosen you to be the utmost of his creation, to be above all other things. He's used himself as a pattern to design you and I. He took his traits and he made you. It doesn't matter what you look like, doesn't matter how smart you are, doesn't matter what you're good at, doesn't matter your gender or your race or your wealth or your status or your power. None of that matters. You are incredible in God's eyes and you have worth because you were made and are loved by one who is worthy. 
This is important not only for our own sake, but because if we can't see that spark of God in ourselves, it's impossible to see it in other people. And if you can't see God in other people, you can't love them the way that he's called us to. Unfortunately, we live in a world that values things more than it values people. And what it values in people are all the wrong things. It values appearance, wealth, accomplishment, and success. Luke 15, 16 puts it into perspective. It says, what people value highly is detestable in the eyes of God. You, your worth is not what the world says it is. It is so much greater than that. Point number two. Verses 11 and 15 tell us that we're members of a body, a new body, a spiritual body. It's re referring to the church. Verse 11 is really one I, what I want to focus on here. But before we got to that, um, I just want to warn that this is where things could get a little controversial. Um, how does the world look at membership? Um, first and foremost, membership is always about commonality in our world. It's always about what I have in common with someone else. Um, we belong to groups that are like ourselves. I, I seek out people that are like me, whether that's people that look like me, people that sound like me, people that believe similar things than, that I do. Um, and I don't think it's wrong to belong to, 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 to groups like that. We have families, teams, schools, even a country that we've all pledged allegiance to before, most of us before becoming members of the church. Um, we're members of those groups first. Um, it's called tribalism in its human nature. I don't think in its essence that it's ultimately wrong. We identify with people that are like us because that makes us comfortable. And I think, I think comfort is a good thing. I, com I think comfort is a blessing. But when we get too wrapped up and too satisfied in that comfort, that's when it becomes an issue. Verse 11, I'm going to reread this. Um, there's a list of tribes here that the Colossians identify with. Um, she's not going to put it back up. That's okay. You don't have to. I've got it here. Verse 11 says, um, talking about the renewal of the self, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. This passage reminds me a lot of uh, 1 Corinthians when Paul is talking about being separating ourselves in groups like I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and all these things. And Paul's opinion of that is that that's ridiculous. We're only of Christ. Christ is the only distinction that matters anymore. Um, so I think the Colossians here are really struggling with trying to be something different than what they were before. There's Hebrews that have, Jews that have been Hebrews their whole life and, 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 uh, adhere to Hebrewic law, and then there's Gentiles who have just become new to it and didn't, didn't, they still eat meat that have been sacrificed to pagans and things like that, to, to, to idols. And so there's a lot of divisions within them because of these distinctions they've made themselves. Nationalities, um, things that they've done, like circumcised or not circumcised themselves. I think that this is really true of us today as well. I'm going to use some uh, terms that are probably, some classifications that are probably a little more familiar to us today than things like Scythians and barbarians. We don't go around calling each other barbarians, at least I hope not. But we do, we do label each other. We do identify with groups that even within the church are distinct. How about Republican or Democrat or even American? These are all groups that we most of us, not all of us, but most of us identify, I would say all of us identify with at least, at least one of those probably. Um, 
But this passage makes it clear that those distinctions are no longer necessary. Um, Paul makes it clear that it's no longer valid. It's no longer valid to distinguish ourselves in that way. Um, what's more, I posit that these distinctions do more harm than they do good. Um, first and foremost, the body to which we belong is the bride of Christ, His church. When you accept Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior and as your go-to guy, that's it. You're in His family first. It trumps all other relationships, trumps all other belongings. Even sometimes, this is hard to hear, even your, your biological family, it comes before that. I know there are Christians sitting in here today whose husbands or wives or children's or fathers or mothers don't know Jesus. And that hurts them, and it hurts me that they have relationships like that. That I have a brother who doesn't know Jesus, and he's my brother, and he'll always be my brother, but my relationship to God and my relationship to you comes before that. That's a more important bond than I have with him. And that's, that's difficult to say, and that's difficult to hear, I think. Um, if we pledge allegiance to anything above the body of Christ, we are committing nothing short of idolatry. You and I have greater commonality, not only with the members of this congregation, but with the global church than you do with any non-Christian. Even ones that look like you, sound like you, are interested in things that excite you or agree with you politically. We need to stop letting things that have little to no eternal value separate and divide us. Jesus says in John 13, 35, that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for each other. My question is, does the world see that when it sees the church? Does he see, not just this church, I don't, I don't mean just to call out our congregation, but right now in America, when people that don't know Jesus, when they think of the church, do they think of the love that it has for itself, that it has for its people? I think that's a really telling question to answer. And if you're being honest with yourself, the answer's hard. Um... We have to set petty disagreements, especially political ones, aside for the sake of our witness. Republicans can love and follow Jesus. Democrats can love and follow Jesus. We must stop assuming that because someone does not think like me, they must be wrong. We have made our neighbors into our enemies simply for thinking differently than we do. Voting differently than we do. This isn't just the problem in party lines, though. We've succumbed to a false religion in America that is called nationalism. Nationalism is when you place your love for country above all other loves. It's when you become more passionate about your politics or your candidates than you do about God. And let's be honest, it's made its way into the church. It's when you believe that America has more right to God or has more of God than any other country. I hear nationalism when I hear the phrase America first. No Christian should ever say America first. When you say that, you are placing America before the kingdom of God and that you are taking your values from politics and platforms instead of from the word of God. Another phrase that just drives me crazy, sorry, I hear nationalism and I know it may be re me reading into it, but when someone says America is a Christian nation, I balk at that. I'm sorry to break it to you, 
but it's not. It really never has been. I think when people say that, they think that our values as Americans have often aligned with the values of the church. But Jesus makes it pretty clear that we're not to be of the world, not of any political party, not of any thought that makes sense to the world. He tells us that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. I think there was a time in the past, like I said, that maybe these American values seem to be congruent with Christian values, but that time is fleeting. And to be honest with you, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. God calls us in Romans 12 too, not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Many Christians of America, in America have been lulled into a sense of complacency because of how we have equated Christian values with American ones. But they are not the same. In fact, many American values are anti-gospel values. The antithesis of what God calls us to do and who he calls us to be. Things like individualism, materialism, patriotism and love of war are not values that Jesus cherishes. I digress here. Too often when people say it's a Christian nation, they seem to mean to me that America is God's chosen nation. And there's no truth to that at all. God's chosen nation in the Old Testament was Israel. And in the New Testament, it's the church because Israel has rejected Jesus. The global church is God's people. The church of every nation, whether in North America, Asia, Europe, Africa, or on the moon, God's people is his church. Paul makes that very clear here. Tribalism is something that no longer has value. We don't need to group ourselves with people like us because we have the only thing that matters in common. In the church, we have all submitted to the lordship of Jesus. And even more than that, even outside of the church, we have all been made in the image of God. Point number three. Renewal is continuous. It's a process. It's not something that happens overnight. It's not a one-time thing. Um, change is hard. The world doesn't like change. The world teaches us that change is oftentimes impossible and unnecessary. I don't know how many times I've heard people say things like, people don't change or don't change me, I am who I am, something along those lines. And that, that's a pretty anti-gospel sentiment as well. Um, the truth is that because we like to be in control, because we dislike in uncertainty, and a lot of times we just don't like the work that it takes, it's difficult for us to change. It's difficult for people to do the work necessary to become better. Um, even when the world acknowledges that change is good, it's usually finite. We set goals to help us change, things that have an end game, like, for instance, I want to lose 30 pounds, or I want to learn to play the guitar, right? I, I have a goal, I have an inset, once I reach that goal, it's done, I'm changed, I don't have to do anymore, right? That's often the mindset of the world when it comes to change. Hopefully, as Christians, we see the need for change, but sometimes I think we are mistaken about how the change happens and when. I think often we try to do it ourselves under our own strength, and that's doomed to fail. I also think that sometimes we assume that it happens all in one fell swoop when we come to know Christ, and that's not right as either. Truth is, true change only comes through submission. 
God has given us the gift of his spirit, and it is through its work that lasting transformation occurs. Nothing that you do, nothing that I do will ever truly change us. It's only through daily submission to the spirit, listening to that still small voice, that that voice that in seasons is impossible to hear, and doing what it says to do. Sometimes that's as simple as being made uncomfortable by something, having a pull towards something. Sometimes it's a big smack in the face to say, nah, not that way, that way, right? But either way, it comes not through my own strength, not through my own understanding, but through submission. Submission to who God is, submission to who His Spirit is, submission to His power in our lives. Um, God's given us this gift, and it's through that work that transformation occurs. We're transformed by listening and obeying to it. It convicts us of our sins and leads us to repentance, and it is a process. Here in verse 10, along with Romans 12, 2 and 2 Corinthians 3, 18, we see that it is ongoing work. In every sense, the reason I, I mentioned all three of those verses, there's something that I always find interesting, um, that um, Greek present tense, it's imperative tense. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm an English nerd. I used to be an English teacher. An imperative is a, is, is a part of language that's basically a, a command. It says, do this, do that, right? Um, in the Greek imperative present tense, it's ongoing. It's not something that has been done. It's not something that you will do. It is something that is always being done, basically, is the way that it works. And that's the tense of this word here. When it says, be renewed, be transformed, it's saying it's a constant, continual, continuous, not continual. There's a slight distinction there. Continuous. It's ever present. It's ever going. It's something that I wake up day after day and decide to do. Submission to the Holy Spirit is not a one-time thing. It's a daily decision. Sometimes it's a moment-to-moment decision. There are days in my life when I don't hear the calling of the Spirit because I'm so caught up in my own selfless, selfishness and just sin and things that are, make me blind to it that I don't hear. There are seasons in my life where I'm not welcome to that transformation. And then there are seasons in my life where I'm hearing it 9, 10, 12, 15 times a day. You know, but it's a decision to be made daily. It's a decision to be made moment by moment. That transformation is never complete until we are fully transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And that doesn't happen in this life. It doesn't happen until the next life. We must identify that voice and spirit and then act under its influence. Only through prayer and earnest seeking are we able to find that voice and listen to it. All right, finally... Point number four, and this is where I want to leave you and give you a challenge for, for your day, for your life. Um, in verses 12 through 14, we see God's list of things that he wants us to do. Um, unconditionally love people is basically the, the, the easiest way to put it. He tells us to forgive no matter what. He tells us to have compassion and to be generous and all these things in these verses. And he says love is above all things. Love is the greatest of these things. Um, it's pretty clear, um, and it's honestly pretty simple, but pretty difficult what he asks us to do. And it's the exact opposite of the world, what the world expects of us. The world sees loves mostly as transactional and reciprocal. I love people who love me back. I do things for people with the expectation that they'll do something back for me, right? Um, it's inwardly focused. It asks the question, what do I get from this relationship? If you're familiar with Greek forms of love, um, this is... F- the philia love, the, the word that Philadelphia 
is based off of brotherly love, this idea that we both give equally, you give and I give. That's the world's definition of love, right? And I think that relationships can be healthy with that kind of love. You give, I give. That's, that's ideal, right? Whether we're talking about a friendship or we're talking about a, a, a business partnership or, or a romantic relationship. I give 50%, you give 50%, you meet me halfway, I meet you halfway. That's logical from the world's perspective. That seems like a good deal. But it's not how God has called us to love. The word that God uses in this instance is agape. It's self-sacrificing. It's what God did when he sent Jesus to the world. He didn't do it for his own sake. It's not an inward love. It's an outward love. He did it for the, the sake of others, for those outside. And that's the way he calls us to love each other. That's the way he calls us to love people, is to not ask what we get out of the relationship, but what we can give. To love others for their sake, not for our own. It is a sacrificial and holy giving type of love. He asks that we take away all of the conditions. Too often in the world, even in the church, I see conditions. We are okay, we are okay with giving to the poor, but only to those that aren't lazy or haven't done something to deserve what they, their poorness, what they don't have, right? We've bought into this American ideal that if you want to be successful, you will be successful through your own hard work. There's, there's some truth to that, but not a whole lot, right? The world is a hard place, and sometimes people do their best and they still fail. Here's one that may get controversial. We use terms like legal and illegal immigrants, Sorry. Um, I feel pretty strongly about that. These are conditions that might be necessary when coming from a government in order to properly allocate its resources or protect its people, but they are distinctions that hold zero weight with God. Jesus does not say, love those who deserve to be loved. He does not say, feed the hungry that, well, frankly, haven't made any bad decisions right? He doesn't say, welcome the stranger that came here through filling out all the right paperwork, right? He says very clearly, love all people always without conditions. He gives us plenty of clear instruction on how we're supposed to love. In Deuteronomy, he tells the Israelites to love the stranger, for you were once strangers in Egypt. In Leviticus, he tells them to treat foreigners as citizens and love them as themselves, and to not withhold justice from foreigners, the fatherless, or the widow. In Matthew, Jesus tells us not only to love your neighbor as yourself, but he takes it a step farther and says to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. When Peter asks how often he should forgive others, he says not seven times, seven multiplied by 70 times. He says if someone strikes you on the right cheek, then present to him your left cheek. If someone sues you for your shirt, give him your coat as well. He goes on to tell us to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, Visit the sick and the imprisoned. Nowhere does he add conditions. He doesn't say to visit the innocent prisoner or to feed and clothe the deserved poor. It is important to remember that Jesus didn't just die for you or me. He died for the rapists, the prostitutes, and the murderers. Even the unrepentant ones. 
He didn't come to save the righteous. He came for the sinners and the so-called scum of the earth. He calls us to love and forgive as he has loved and forgiven, sacrificially pouring ourselves out for the sake of others. To love in this way in my actual life requires the Spirit's power beyond my own. It's not something I'm capable of. Through the Spirit, I can put you in front of me even if you don't put you, me in front of you. Let me say that again because I kind of jumbled the words. Through the Spirit, I can put you in front of me even if you don't put me in front of you. Because I trust that God's love is big enough that if I put others before myself, I will not lose. Ultimately, there is nothing to lose because he has already won. I want to close by giving you a challenge. I believe that God's vision for his church is to be a refuge for people that have been rejected and abused by the world. We as a body should be a resting place, not only for the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant, but for all the broken and wayward souls, the last, the least, and the lost. Church, be God's unconditional love to the world, especially when it doesn't love you back. Lord, we love you. I thank you so much for this time to gather this morning. I thank you for everything you've given us. I thank you for the sacrifice of your son on the cross. I just ask that you transform us. We be people after your own heart, that we set aside the things of this world and that we have a worldview that sees people through the lens of Christ, sees the beauty of every single person we come in contact with for the reason that they were made by you, that you love them, that you are in them, that your image is, is imprinted upon them. I ask that you reveal your spirit to us, that you give us the will and honestly just help us to decide to follow you daily, to make it a daily moment-by-moment -moment decision, to love others more than we love ourselves. In your son's holy name, amen.